Welcome to this week's podcast from Oceans Church in Orange County. We hope you're encouraged by this week's message. For more information, please visit our website at theoceanschurch.com. So excited. Um, I want to uh, get rolling today. We are in the third, third week of this series, Overcomers. Uh, this is our second week meeting in person. And uh, again, I know that we're in a, in a interesting, I feel like if you want to if you want to get exhausted, just look at the news or look on your phones or social media. Uh, the Lord was like, Mark, you got to get off a little bit of some of this stuff. You know, God never made us to carry the burdens of the earth. Did you know that? Uh, one of the things about us is the Bible refers to human beings as sheep. And one interesting fact about sheep is they are not burden-bearing animals. They are uh, camels, right, donkeys. They'll carry a load. But you never see in, in you know, Egypt, you know, a bunch of sheep behind a convoy carrying a bunch of baggage. They are not burden-bearing animals. And uh, I think there's something to be told about we bring our burdens to him. And so uh, I know it's exhausting. Some of the things going on right now in the world are painful and they're hard to carry and hard to process. And uh, I was just praying this week, as I try to do every week for you guys, and I really feel like the Lord said, Mark, I want you to talk about what's happening in the world in the light of what I dealt with in John chapter 4. And so I'm going to read, for those of you that grew up in church, a familiar passage uh, for most of you. Uh, if you're new today, maybe you've never been to church before, this is going to be brand new. But essentially it's about a woman, and uh, just to kind of give you a little bit of a, a heads up, this is a, one of the most racially charged passages uh, in the ministry of Jesus. And it's beautiful because we see how Jesus interacts in a racial climate. We see how he responds to racism, sexism, and even how he responds to people that are morally bankrupt. And uh, we really get the heart of Jesus for humanity. And again, I think what's happening here and now, some people say it's brand new, but Solomon writes there's nothing new under the sun. That uh, all, all sin issues originated at the fall of humanity. And uh, so today I want to read this, and I want to talk about being an overcomer. And I want to I I talk about, again, unusual title for today's message, but my title is 48 Hours. 48 Hours. I'm not talking about, for those of you old enough to remember, Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte. There's three laughs in here. God bless you. But I'm talking about a, uh, a window of time that I believe was very significant in John chapter 4. Let's begin reading. I'm going to read a little bit more than usual. Stay with me. 24 verses. I'll read it fast. Everything I teach on today is connected to these 24 verses. Uh, after I read them, I'm going to pray. I'm going to tell a couple stories. If you laugh, we call them jokes. If you don't laugh, we call you a bad crowd. <laughs> Kidding. Uh, and we're going to have a good time. I, if I wasn't in ministry, I would have probably uh, pursued some sort of average career in stand-up comedy. Um, but the Lord had a sense of humor to call me into ministry. And so I will try to uh, keep heavy topics as light as I can. And my hope would be is that we learn something today about God that would change, change something inside of our hearts. So let's read together. Starting in verse 5, it says that Jacob, uh, Jesus came. Uh, he had to go to the city of Samaria. City of Samaria. City of what? There, there they are, uh, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob's well uh, was that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being exhausted from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Someone say noon. Jewish day started at 6 a.m. and ended at 6 p.m. The sixth hour is noon. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, oh, I read that part. And it says, the woman of Samaria came to draw from the water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. The disciples had gone away into the city to buy some food. The woman of Samaria said to him, shocked, how in the world, you being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Say it with me, Samaritan woman. 
For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said, hey, if you knew the gift of God was before you, you'd ask me, and I would have given you living water. Let's, let's skip a verse here. She's taking him literally out of everything that, that he says. And it's kind of like Nicodemus taking Jesus literally, right? Remember when Jesus, Nick, Nick came to Jesus at night, Nick at night? And uh, sorry, that was a dad joke. Uh, tough crowd. Uh, but he took him literally. And, and she's taking him literally here. And, and it goes on in verse 13. Jesus answered and said, hey, Whoever drinks these waters are going to get thirsty again, but, but if I give you a drink, you'll never thirst. But the water that I give to him will become a fountain in him, springing up to everlasting life. She takes him literally. Sir, give me some of that water so I don't have to come here anymore and drink from, drink from this well. Jesus said, go and call your husband and come here. Now, I almost titled this message, Awkward Conversations. I might do a series in the future called Awkward Conversations. Because the Bible is littered with stories that just make you cringe. This is one of them. Go call your husband and we'll talk about it. She's like, I don't have a husband. He's like, you're, you're right. Well said. You don't have a husband. You've actually had five husbands. And the one you're with, number now, number six, is not your husband. In that, you've spoken truly. Love this response. She says, I perceive that you're a prophet. <laughs> what a perception. This word gets, for me, it gets funny. It reminds me when I'm on an airplane and people are talking to me and they don't know what I do for a living and they're dropping every vulgar word in the English vernacular. And then all of a sudden, I know it's coming. I experience this all the time. They say, so what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. And immediately, praise the Lord. I knew I sensed the anointing. Just oh, Glory. That's exactly what happens right here. She goes, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain. And then they go on, right? And she goes, uh, you know, starts talking about this. And, and she, Jesus responds, believe me, the hour is coming. And, and, and neither this mountain nor in Jerusalem, uh, you'll worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming. Someone say, now is. Now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father, he's actually desiring such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. Jesus is like, that's me. Big moment. During the big moment, if this was Hollywood, you have the cameras showing the disciples coming in the peripheral. Their, their jaws on the ground. And at this point, the disciples came in. They marveled that he's talking to a woman, let alone a Samaritan woman. And the woman left her water pots at that moment. She went into the city. This part gets me every time. And she's excited. She says, come see a man who told me everything that I've ever done. Could this be the Christ? And then those from the city came out to see Jesus, verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me everything that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to Jesus, they urged him to stay with them. And there he stayed for two, not one, but two days. Not 24, but 48 hours. And many more believed because of his own word. They said to the woman, hey, we, now we believe, not only because of what you said, but we ourselves have heard him and we know that he indeed is the Christ, the Savior of the world. 48 hours. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for what you're doing in Orange County, for what you're doing in California. I thank you that you're not done with this state. You're not done with America. You're not done with the world. We thank you that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. 
Would you meet us where we are today? At the end of the day, we thank you that you always save the best for last. So would you come, Lord, in a special way, this service, whether we're online or in person, would you speak to us today? Would you build us up? Let us all finish this service today going, man, I'm glad I watched. I'm glad I came to church. In Jesus' name, bless the Lakers. Everyone said, come on. You gotta sneak it in there when you can, amen? I, uh, I was thinking about uh, time and how time goes by so fast. And uh, it's funny how, isn't it, the, the dichotomy of life is that you could simultaneously um, say the last three months have gone by so slow. Someone said that March was the longest decade in history. And uh, it can go by so slow, but also simultaneously so fast. I always say this, my mom always jokes and says that life is like toilet paper rolls. That in the beginning it starts slow, but the closer you get to the end, the faster it goes. There's a lot of truth in that. Can I get an amen? And uh, time. It's funny how 24 hours can go by so quick. 24 hours can go by so fast. And I was thinking like, I was talking to my friend Tom, and I said, Tom, can you find me some interesting things that you can do in 24 hours? So he did some research on the great uh, scholar and theologian of Wikipedia. And we discovered that, that you can actually... You can walk the entire island of Manhattan in 24 hours. We discovered that in 24 hours, you can actually read all of Shakespeare's 37 plays. In 24 hours, you can actually go vegan. And in 48 hours, you can watch 24 twice. Tough crowd. I, uh, I was thinking about, though, 48 hours, 48 hours. I think one of the things that I was praying this week as I read the story is how Jesus is so powerful and profound that he could turn a racially charged environment, a, an unjust environment, he could heal decades, centuries of pain in 48 hours. No one else in, no one, no one in history has ever brought reconciliation in shorter windows of time than Jesus. The story is unbelievable because we see here that this lady, number one, she has three strikes going against her. In Bible days, she has three strikes. Not now. Now you're like, these aren't big deals. Back then, big deals. First strike she has going, this might be the only baseball you get the next couple months, so pay attention. First strike we see here is this woman actually is a Samaritan. Doesn't mean much today, but in Bible days, Samaritans were actually loathed. Jews and Samaritans were at odds with each other. It's rooted all the way back into 729 B.C. when the Assyrians invaded northern Samaria. They actually took 27,000 Samaritans with them. And when they deported these people, uh, a chunk of them remained. Those that remained began to intermarry with the Assyrians and adopted their gods and their cultures, which in Jewish times was the ultimate unforgivable no-no. So the Jews wrote them off. They said, how could you intermarry? How could you worship their gods? And so there's this, this, this uh, chasm that begins in 729 B.C. We see 300 years later that in 425 B.C., when Nehemiah in chapter 4 of Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls, the Sumerians say, hey, can we help rebuild the church? They say, no, you can't. You've, you've committed the most unforgivable sin that you've intermarried, that you've mixed races and cultures, and you're worshiping foreign gods. And because of that, the Sumerians went from trying to help them build the tabernacle, build, build the church, to actually trying to destroy it. And it charged this racially. You think that where we're at today is charged. Back then, there was an animosity between Samaritans and Jews so charged that literally you would not accept food if you were starving to death from a Samaritan. You would not, you would not accept water if you were Thirsty to death. I think the word's dehydrated. There it is. 
since third service. <laughs> if they were Samaritan, Palestine was 120 miles from the top to the bottom. You had Galilee at the top, you had Judea at the bottom, in the middle was Samaria. To go from the bottom to the top, it would take six days unless you went through Samaria, which would only take it three days. Half the journey, but people would be willing to go double the time to avoid Samaritans. It's interesting that throughout the Bible, Jesus wants to make a good light out of Samaritans. Ironically, in Luke chapter 10, he tells a story about the good Samaritan. That's a wild narrative. That would be like calling, hey, it's, it's the non-smelly poopy toilet. That's essentially what these, the good Samaritan, like how could you call it a good Samaritan? They kept over and over again, Luke portrayed Samaritans in a positive light. He talks about 10 lepers that were cleansed. Only one came back to say thank you. And the grateful thank you man was a Samaritan. Interesting that you find in this passage that this woman was, a, number one, a Samaritan. Samaritans were hated because they said in, in Kings, it talks about they had five false gods that they actually went after. Some scholars speculate that one of the problems, uh, one of the things that they hated, they, they, this, this story is unique in John chapter 4, is that she had five husbands and the sixth one was not married to her. And the idea was, is some people speculate, that the five husbands she had were five false gods and she was unwilling to commit to the one true God, get married. Another message. Interesting, though, was that she, she was a Samaritan. Number two, she is a woman. Not a big deal today, but in Bible days, uh, like strict rabbis wouldn't even talk to their mothers, their sisters, or even their wives in public. It was a disgraceful thing to socialize with females in public. So she is a woman. So when Jesus' little disciples come back, the little Jewish crew of boys come back, and they're like, There's, what's going on? We got some food from the village. And they see Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman. Two strikes. Let's, look, let's strike number three. You ready? Strike number three is she has been married five times, is on number six. So she's not just a woman. She's kind of the New Testament Rahab, which basically means she has a, she has a pretty diverse background. She's not the type of woman you want to associate with. As a good religious leader, it's like, I don't know if you want to portray, portray that you're hanging out with that demographic. And we see here, listen to me very closely, that since the origins of Christianity, Jesus smashed the barriers. He had a way of deconstructing man-made barriers that kept some people groups there and some others over here. It's amazing to me that three strikes we find here against this woman but the, the part that could that really captures my imagination is, is uh, this woman obviously is ostracized. She's marginalized. She's experienced racism, sexism, probably experienced injustice on multiple levels. So much so that she's alienated from her, for, from her community. The Bible says she's at Jacob's well, which is about a half a mile out of the city. And here's the point, is there is closer wells... Which leads us to believe two, two anomalies in the story. Number one, she's going to a well that's further than all the other wells. First interesting thing. Second interesting, probably even more significant. She goes to the well at noon. In Bible culture, you would go to the wells in the beginning of the day before it got hot. This is a hot climate. And what we know is, is you'd only go to the well at the hottest point of the day that's furthest away if you were socially ostracized. So Jesus goes, I got to go through Samaria, and ironically, incidentally, maybe coincidentally, maybe not, he ends up sitting at Jacob's well next to this woman when no one else is present, and he starts a conversation with her. 
here's the, here's the I guess, the, 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 big, the big nugget of wisdom that we see in this day that's true of today is that he chooses in this climate with this woman who is Samaritan that actually has the background that she has to maybe unpack one of the most beautiful conversations about worship than any human being has ever had with Jesus. Could it be that God would unpack the greatest truth about worship with a person that desperately needs the message of worship the most? Let me say it another way. If, if her pain was greater than everyone else's pain, maybe Jesus would treat her differently with a more aggressive form of cure. Could it be that worship, I'm just kind of speculating here, that worship could do something to someone that's been a, a victim of racism, sexism, and injustice, that, that worship would have a way of healing the human heart quicker, faster, and more profound than any other medium three people fired up. I love this, that God would disclose the most beautiful conversation about worship to a woman, Samaritan, who has a, who has a, a muddied history. And, and this is what we know is he, he, he discloses what worship is. This is where I want to kind of get into today, is he basically says all worship, true worship, and he mentions that there's true worship because there also is, listen, if he, if he says something's true, it's because there, there always is a counterfeit. So true worship, that's what he says, it starts with knowing, it says, those that worship the Father. The Father, are seek, the Father is seeking those to worship him this way. Here's what we know. Number one is that worship realizes that you are, number one, a child of God. True worship is rooted in this ideology that I don't have to earn God's approval. I don't have to merit his favor. That the moment I believe in my father, that he calls me. Listen, long before you were proud to call God your father, he was excited to call you his kid. That's who he is. And so this woman, she, he says, hey, here's what you got to know about worship. Is the true worship was worship the father. True worshipers in spirit and in truth. I believe that worship can do more to a human soul than anything. Prayer and worship. And here's my, here's my rebuttal to the world that says, Worship's just not good enough. That's a cheap token of, of justice in what we're facing today. I'm not suggesting that we end with worship or we stop with prayer, but I certainly believe that we shouldn't under, undervalue that if the early church transformed regions by prayer and by worship, maybe God can still do it today. It's crazy that she, she comes on the scene and, and, and he says, you worship in spirit and in truth. Your spirit is the immortal part of you that doesn't die. It's the invisible part of you that no one can see. And Jesus basically says, if you really want to you get close to God, there's something about the invisible, eternal part of you connecting with the invisible, eternal part of God that has a way of healing your soul, cleansing the wounds of your heart. True worship is through the spirit and it actually attains friendship and intimacy with God when, when, when the immortal and the invisible, uh, it's the part of us that speaks and meets with God. That's what worship is. It's when the invisible, immortal part of us actually speaks to and meets with God. I've sung songs on the radio that were written from the head. I've, songs, I've sung songs, whoa, <sighs> on the radio that were written from the heart. 
But I don't know if you've ever been in an environment that you don't know exactly why you feel the way you feel, but you feel like you're connecting with God on a level that's beyond logic, intellect, or some sort of reason. It's like something deep within your spirit is actually connecting with God. You ever sing like church songs that they don't even sing lyrics, it's just noises? Whoa! It's like, what are we doing? But you're singing these things and like the whole room starts singing it together. And it's this context of praise and adoration to God. And it's like everyone in the room is aiming their spirit at God at the same time. And as they do, something deep in you connects to something deep in God. Worship brings healing in ways that other things can't access. It unlocks parts of you that are too deep for other, other things to access. That's what worship does. And she begins to worship in spirit. And here's the second part is worship isn't just, it's not just your spirit connecting with God. It's coming to God in adoration, even with truth. We get this part mixed up sometimes today. We think that God only listens when we're having a good day, when we got a raise, we got a bonus. We started dating Boaz. Come on. The Lord brought my Boaz. I'm having a good day. Come on. Life is good. You get the bumper sticker on the back of your car. What? We think that, man, God is only listening in the peachy, fuzzy, warm moments of life. But what I see as I read the book of Psalms is David has some of the most profound moments of his humanity when he comes to God in complete honesty about the ruthless, unjust circumstances of his life. True worship is not just singing peachy, fuzzy lyrics. It's actually coming to God with the deepest frustrations. God, I don't know why. I don't know how. I don't know when. I don't know, I don't know if, but I believe that you can. And as you kind of come to God in this aspect of truth and hunger and passion, there's something in worshiping God in truth that liberates the human soul. And I believe that as we worship, worship reveals our true our identity. Say that again. I feel something in here, third sir. You guys are crazy. Worship unlocks our true our identity. You see, when you worship, you realize one thing when you start to worship God is, number one, about identity. You're a child of God. And I want you to know, when you begin to worship, you begin to sense, man, I think the reason why God is showing up like he is is because I'm his kid, because he loves me. I've been in, I've been in other nations, like last week, uh, most weeks we have people that come to our services that don't even speak English. Like my friend Santiago usually brings his parents. They don't speak English. And they sit through our services. Some of our team was like, man, I wonder if they can just sense the presence of God. And I was like, absolutely. I've been in other nations. I've preached and I had interpreters that were speaking Swahili and Portuguese and Spanish all over the world. And it's amazing that I'm listening to some of these preachers and musicians in other languages. I can't understand what they're saying, but I'm telling you something in my spirit is going, God is in this environment. And, and that's what's so powerful about worship is it starts to establish our God-given identities. This was this is interesting. In verse 29, here's what we know, is that if we're children of God, the first thing that children know is I'm fully known by God. Right, I just want you to write down, fully known. Verse 29 is cool because it makes me laugh every time I read it. That this woman who's been married, who's been divorced five times on number six, she runs into a village that she's ostracized from, marginalized from, that's usually ashamed to be around, and she runs in with a smile on her face, and she says, here's her, here's her line. Can you imagine? Imagine seeing the woman that you don't normally see. Imagine seeing the one that everyone kind of talks about, the one that's the butt of every moral joke. And you see her running in, and this is what she says. This is like, this is a comedy skit right here. 
Come see a man who told me everything that I've ever done. Listen, she didn't cure cancer. She didn't invent a rocket ship. She didn't have a resume to be proud of. Come on, somebody. But what's amazing about God is he's the only one that you can give your worst to and still feel the best about. He's the only one that you can take the darkest moments of your life, the metallic parts of your soul, and go, God, I mean, I was abused. This happened, injustice, rape, the scorn, all these painful moments of my life, and I can bring them to him, and I can feel the weight of how bad it was, but simultaneously feel the hope of how good he is. Come see a man who told me everything. Everything? Everything. Like, I would have preferred, I would have been excited. He's like, hey, guys, come see a guy who told me all my best moments. He was there when I won my karate match. He was there, like, when I graduated. Like, come see a God who, who knew all the secrets of the good parts of my life. But what's wild is, is that she understood that she was fully known by God, but she wasn't just fully known. See, children that are healthy understand that their fathers not only know them, but number two, they accept them. This is profound because, because she wasn't just known by God. Because it's one thing you can know all about somebody and say, I, look, I know who you are, but I don't want to be friends. God goes from knowing who you are to saying, I know you. I know your lowest and your darkest, but I still accept you. That's what it says. It says in Ephesians 1, 6 that we actually praise, we honor the glorious grace that God has poured out on us because we belong to him. We're accepted in the beloved. I love this, man. It's so powerful because not only are you fully known by God as his child, you're accepted. And not only are you accepted, because I don't know about you, man, in school, I went to a public school. I ate in the cafeteria. There were some meals that I accepted. But if we're being real, I didn't love him. Number three is I want you as a child of God, you are not just known, not just accepted. Here's the really good news. You're actually loved. God doesn't just tolerate, come on, that that little box of milk, that little soggy ranch salad with two and a half tomatoes, one cucumber slice. Come on, who's I'm talking about? Where's my public school people at? He's not just accepting that meal. God says, I don't just accept you. I actually love you. First John 4.19 says that we love God because he first loved us. I reiterate, for those in the back, that we actually, we, we, long before we were proud to call God our father. He was proud to call us his sons and daughters. We love him because he loved us first. I'm a child of God. Can I get a good amen? And this is what this woman begins to realize. I am a child of God. And I love the fact that in a short window of time, here's my thesis, that God can do more in a smaller window of time than man can ruin in a long window of time. It took him 48 hours to change the landscape of Samaria. It was so profound. It was so, so strong, so concentrated with what he did that this is interesting. This is kind of a fun note is that, is that um, Samaritans were like Sadducees. They didn't believe in resurrections. They didn't, they didn't believe in a resurrected life. And the irony is, is that after Jesus came back from the dead, resurrected, the first charge he would give the world on their global mandate to reach the earth is he said, hey, my spirit's going to come on you. And when it does, Acts, Acts, chapter, uh, two, uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when he comes on you, you're going to be my witnesses. All right, witnesses where? In uh, Jerusalem? Jews? Yeah, yeah. Judea? Yeah, yeah. Jews? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Samaria? They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa. 
and then to the ends of the earth. Here's what I learned, and this is what the Holy Spirit was speaking to me all week, is that we will never effectively reach, like Makesh said, the nations of the earth until we do well loving our Samaritans. The gospel isn't just targeted for people that look like us, dress like us, talk like us. And I'm not trying to get political or weird or racist. Anything. I want to be very clear and candid is that the gospel had a way of deconstructing the barriers between humanity. Are you with me today? Like when we get to heaven, it's going to be, it's going to be a colorful place. I tell you right now, racists will not like heaven. Can I get an amen? Because it's all tribes. It's all, it's all tongues. Reinhard Bonnke was a German, one of the greatest evangelists to ever live. He actually evangelized Africa in a way that no one ever has. And he used to always say in his German accent, he'd always say, when I die, and he just went home to, to glory last year. He says, when I die, I want, to, I want to be in the African choir. That was pretty good. Bless myself right there. He said, the African choir will sound better than all the other nations. I'm like, amen to that. I want you to know that Jesus makes a precedent here that he actually loves Samaritan women who have been marginalized. And I want to remind you that if he's done this 2,000 years ago in a world that was completely, uh, completely against all three ideas, what would he do in our era? What would he do in our age? I believe that, that the time is coming that God can do more in a short window of time, like 48 hours. And what I would say is, is that if God, listen, if God could reveal the greatest the, one of the greatest revelatory thoughts on worship, think about this. No one else God sat down with and said, hey, sit down, sit down. Hey, uh, uh, Zacchaeus, sit down. Peter, sit down. Hey, 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 sit down. Uh, Andrew, sit down. He didn't get anybody and sit them down and talk to them about worship except the Samaritan woman at a well in the middle of the day as she's alienated. And I believe this is my personal conviction is that God knew who needed worship the most. God knew who needed worship the most. You know, you know who needs worship the most? Those that had the deepest wounds. You know what Jesus said? He said, he said hey, if two guys uh, owed you a debt, and uh, one owed you a million, and one owed you $100, and you pardoned both debts, which one would be more grateful? Peter's like, I suppose the one that had the greater debt. He's like, you answered right. And that's when he went on the record to say this, this powerful phrase. He says, those that have been forgiven of much, they love much. But the problem in America today is that those that have been forgiven just a little bit, they love just a little bit. And that's why I believe God would reveal the greatest dimension of what worship really is to a person that would value the power of what it could do for their soul. The bank I'm almost finished today. I want to remind all of us today that we aren't home yet. Can I get an amen from the back? We aren't home yet. And before I'm an American, before I'm a Democrat or Republican, before I'm a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, before I'm a police officer, a pastor, before I'm white or before I'm black, I want you to know this. I am a child of God. And I want you to know that nowhere else in Scripture do people identify anything other than being a child, being in Christ. You will never see anything in scriptures being a, I am in my, my, my Judaism. I am in, I am in this. I am in that. There's nothing in scripture that would actually back up a worldview that says I am anything other than 
a child. I'm not saying you can't be other things. I'm saying before I am anything else. And the problem is we look at the political landscape from our political views, not our theological views. Our, our, our view of the earth has to start with our relationship with God. My brother-in-law is brilliant. He's way smarter than all of us. And he said this last week. He, he said this in his message. I'm going to paraphrase because I'm going to butcher it because he's smarter than me. But he said this. He said, any, any justice that's not attached to Jesus will inevitably become corrupt because Jesus is the personification of justice. It says justice and righteousness are, are, are the foundation of his throne. Justice and righteousness are the inside and the outside of the same place. He said a powerful thing. He said, you cannot be angry and be in love at the same moment. That's why Paul would go on the record and say, be angry and do not sin. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Let me ask you a question. Can you be angry? The answer is yes. Can you be angry? Can we feel anger? But what does he say? You can't let the sun go down on your anger. So listen, we do not respond to injustice and evil and corruption the way that those that do not know this God respond. Because here's what we know. My brother said this so well, so brilliant. He said, Mark, whenever you are in anger, you suspend love. Love is suspended until the moment that you go, I choose. Look, I know it was wrong. I know they were wrong. I know this was wrong. I know that was wrong. But the, listen, you, have to, you, you, can, you can choose to be right or you can choose to get right. You can't simultaneously stay in two worlds at one time. And that's why I make a decision. Look, I've been wrong. You've been wrong. We've all experienced injustice on some levels. But here's the deal. The message of Christianity was is that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I want you to know that we all sin. We all fall short. And my, my, my thought this morning is this, is that worship has a way of healing the deep wounds faster than anything else. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Have a great week.